0: Part three, chapter fifteen of *The Secret City*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Butros. *The Secret City* by Hugh Walpole. Part three, chapter fifteen. This is obviously the place for the story, based, of course, on the very modest and slender account given me by the hero of it, of young Bohun's nightly adventure. In its inception, the whole affair is still mysterious to me. Looking back from this distance of time, I see that he was engaged on one nightly adventure after another first Vera, then Markovitch, lastly Nina. The first I caught at the very beginning, the second I may be said to have inspired, but to the third I was completely blind. I was blind, I suppose, because in the first place Nina had, from the beginning, laughed at Bowen, and in the second she had been entirely occupied with Lawrence. Bowen's knight-errantry came upon her with, I am sure, as great a shock of surprise as it did upon me and yet, when you come to think of it, it was the most natural thing. They were the only two of our party who had any claim to real youth, and they were still so young that they could believe in one ideal after another, as quick as you can catch goldfish in a bowl of water. Bowen would, of course, have indignantly denied that he was out to help anybody, but that, nevertheless, was the direction in which his character led him and once Russia had stripped from him that thin coat of self-satisfaction, he had nothing to do but mount his white charger and enter the tournament. I've no idea when he first thought of Nina. He did not, of course, like her at the beginning, and I doubt whether she caused him any real concern, too, until her flight to Grogoff. That shocked him terribly. He confessed as much to me, She had always been so happy and easy about life. Nothing was serious to her. I remember once telling her she ought to take the war more deeply. I was a bit of a prig about it, I suppose. At any rate, she thought me one. And then, to go off to a fellow like Grogov. He thought of it the more seriously when he saw the agony Vera was in. She did not ask him to help her, and so he did nothing— but he watched her efforts, the letters that she wrote, the eagerness with which she ravished the post, her fruitless visits to Grogoff's flat, her dejected misery over her failure. He began himself to form plans, not, I am convinced, from any especial affection for Nina, but simply because he had the soul of a knight, although, thank God, he didn't know it. I expect, too, that he was pretty dissatisfied with his knight-errantries, his impassioned devotion to Vera had led to nothing at all, his enthusiasm for Russia had led to a most unsatisfactory revolution, and his fatherly protection of Markovitch had inspired apparently nothing more fruitful than distrust. I would like to emphasize that it was in no way from any desire to interfere in other people's affairs that young Bohan undertook these quests. He had none of my own meddlesome quality. He had, I think, very little curiosity and no psychological self-satisfaction. But he had a kind heart, an adventurous spirit, and a hatred for the wrong and injustice which seemed just now to be creeping about the world. But all this, again, thank God, was entirely subconscious. He knew nothing whatever about himself. The thought of Nina worried him more and more. After he went to bed at night, he would hear her laugh and see her mocking smile and listen to her shrill imitations of his own absurdities. She had been the one happy person amongst them all, and now, well, he had seen enough of Boris Grogoff to know what sort of fellow he was. He came at last to the conclusion that, after a week or two she would be sick to death of it and longing to get away but then her pride would keep her at it she'd got a devil of a lot of pride he waited then for a while and hoped i suppose that some of vera's appeals would succeed they did not and then it struck him that vera was the very last person to whom nina would yield just because she wanted to yield to her most which was pretty subtle of him, and very near the truth. No one else seemed to be making any very active efforts, and at last he decided that he must do something himself. He discovered Grogrov's address, went to the Gagarinskaya, and looked up at the flat, hung about a bit in the hope of seeing Nina. Then he did see her at Rozanov's party, and this, although he said nothing to me about it at the time, had a tremendous effect on him. He thought she looked awful. All the joy had gone from her. She was years older, miserable, and defiant. He didn't speak to her, but from that night he made up his mind. Rozanov's party may be said to have been really the turning point of his life. It was the night that he came out of his shell, grew up, faced the world. And it was the night that he discovered that he cared about Nina. The vision of her poor little tired face her rather dirty white dress her grown-up hair her timidity and her loneliness never left him for a moment all the time that i thought he was occupied only with the problem of markovitch and semyonov he was much more deeply occupied with nina so unnaturally secretive can young men be at last he decided on a plan he chose the Monday, the day of the Borse meeting, because he fancied that Grogoff would be present at that, and he might therefore catch Nina alone, and because he and his fellow propagandists would be expected also at the meeting, and he would therefore be free of his office earlier on that afternoon. He had no idea at all how he would get into the flat, but he thought that fortune would be certain to favor him. He always thought that. Well, fortune did. He left the office and arrived at the Gagarinskaya about half-past five in the evening. He walked about a little, and then saw a bearded tall fellow drive up in an Anasvostchik. He recognized this man as Lenin, the soul of the anti-government party, and a man who was afterwards to figure very prominently in Russia's politics. This fellow argued very hotly with the Isvachik about his fare, then vanished through the double doors. Bohun followed him. Outside Grogoff's flat, Lenin waited and rang the bell. Bohun waited on the floor below. Then, when he heard the door open, he noiselessly slipped up the stairs, and, as Lenin entered, followed behind him whilst the old servant's back was turned, helping Lenin with his coat. He found, as he had hoped, a crowd of cloaks and a shuba hanging beside the door in the dark corner of the wall. He crept behind these. He heard Lenin say to the servant that, after all, he would not take off his coat, as he was leaving again immediately. Then directly afterwards Grogoff came into the hall. That was the moment of crisis. Did Grogoff go to the rack for his coat? And all was over. A very unpleasant scene must follow, a ludicrous expulsion, a fling or two at the amiable habits of thieving and deceit on the part of the British nation, and any hope of seeing Nina ruined perhaps forever. Worst of all, the ignominy of it. No young man likes to be discovered hidden behind a coat-rack, however honest his original intentions. His heart beat to suffocation as he peeped between the coats, Grogoff was already wearing his own overcoat. It was, thank God, too warm an evening for a Shuba. The men shook hands, and Grogoff, saying something rather deferentially about the meeting, Lenin in short brusque tones put him immediately in his place. Then they went out together, the door closed behind them, and the flat was as silent as an aquarium. He waited for a while, and then, hearing nothing, crept into the hall. Perhaps Nina was out. If the old servant saw him, she would think him a burglar, and would certainly scream. He pushed back the door in front of him, stepped forward, and almost stepped upon Nina. She gave a little cry, not seeing whom it was. She was looking very untidy, her hair loose down her back, and a rough apron over her dress. She looked ill, and there were heavy black lines under her eyes, as though she had not slept for weeks. Then she saw who it was, and, in spite of herself, smiled. "'Generie!' she exclaimed. "'Yes,' he said in a whisper, closing the door very softly behind him. "'Look here. Don't scream or do anything foolish. I don't want that old woman to catch me.' He has no very clear memory of the conversation that followed. She stood with her back to the wall, staring at him, and every now and again taking up a corner of her pinafore and biting it, He remembered that action of hers especially as being absurdly childish. But the overwhelming impression that he had of her was of her terror, terror of everything and of everybody, of everybody apparently except himself. She told him afterwards that he was the only person in the world who could have rescued her just then because she simply couldn't be frightened of someone at whom she'd laughed so often. She was terrified, of course, of Grogoff, She couldn't mention his name without trembling. But she was terrified also of the old servant, of the flat, of the room, of the clock, of every sound or hint of a sound that there was in the world. She, to be so frightened! She of whom he would have said that she was equal to any one or anything. What she must have been through during those weeks to have brought her to this. But she told him very little, He urged her at once that she must come away with him, there and then, just as she was. She simply shook her head at that. No, 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 she kept repeating. You don't understand. I do understand, he answered, always whispering, and with one ear on the door, lest the old woman should hear and come in. We've got very little time, he said. Grogoff will never let you go if he's here. I know why you don't come back you think we're all looking down on you for having gone, but that's nonsense. We are all simply miserable without you. But she simply continued to repeat, no, no. Then, as he urged her still further, she begged him to go away. She said that he simply didn't know what Grogoff would do if he returned and found him, and although he'd gone to a meeting he might return at any moment, Then, as though to urge upon him Grogoff's ferocity, in little hoarse whispers she let him see some of the things that during these weeks she'd endured. He'd beaten her, thrown things at her, kept her awake hour after hour at night, making her sing to him. And of course worse things, things far, far worse that she would never tell to anybody, not even to Vera poor nina she had indeed been punished for her innocent impetuosities she was broken in body and soul she had faced reality at last and been beaten by it she suddenly turned away from him buried her head in her arm as a tiny child does and cried it was then that he discovered he loved her he went to her put his arm round her kissed her stroked her hair whispering little consoling things to her She suddenly collapsed, burying her head in his breast and watering his waistcoat with her tears. After that he seemed to be able to do anything with her that he pleased. He whispered to her to go and get her hat, then her coat, then to hurry up and come along. As he gave these last commands he heard the door open, turned and saw Masha, Grogoff's old witch of a servant, facing him. The scene that followed must have had its ludicrous side. The old woman didn't scream or make any kind of noise. She simply asked him what he was doing there. He answered that he was going out for a walk with the mistress of the house. She said that he should do nothing of the kind. He told her to stand away from the door. She refused to move. He then rushed at her, caught her round the waist, and a most impossible struggle ensued up and down the middle of the room. He called to Nina to run, and had the satisfaction of seeing her dart through the door like a frightened hare. The old woman bit and scratched and kicked, making sounds all the time like a kettle just on the boil. Suddenly, when he thought that Nina had had time to get well away, he gave the old woman a very unceremonious push, which sent her back against Grogoff's chief cabinet and he had the comfort to hear the whole of this crash to the ground as he closed the door behind him. Out in the street he found Nina, and soon afterwards Anis She crouched up close against him, staring in front of her, saying nothing, shivering and shivering. As he felt her hot hand shake inside his, he vowed that he would never leave her again. I don't believe that he ever will. So he took her home, and his knight-errantry was justified at last. End of Part Three, Chapter Fifteen.